Well, we're going to go ahead and uh, get ready to get started with uh, our next uh, session with uh, Dr. Yuan. And uh, before we go ahead and do that, I just wanted to highlight uh, the book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel. This next talk that Dr. Yuan is going to give is going to be a little bit of a summary of what, uh, of what this book is, uh, is talking about. And as um, just a pastor in this area and just knowing the different kinds of conversations that are going on in the evangelical world at large, it really is good to have a very clear um, a description of, of, of what Dr. Yuan does uh, in this book related to uh, sexuality, uh, biblical terms, understanding them as he's already done today. So I know this will be a big help uh, to you and it's available uh, at their table. So I just wanted to highlight that so that you could have some perspective as he goes into, um, into his next talk. Um, but I hope already that this has been just really encouraging and certainly equipping. I can definitively feel the equipping nature of, of today, a lot to take in. And I know our hope as a church in hosting this was not just to have um, the effect of what happens today, but what we take from it, um, and hopefully the conversations that will, uh, that will result. So uh, let's just once again welcome uh, Dr. Yuan. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, thank you that you have given us your son, Jesus. You have loved us even when we were unlovable. And um, Lord, and thank you, Lord, that you love those that are in our lives who are running from you, who are maybe even saying, you know, that they know you, but their lives don't reflect that. Some who are not even bothering to say they know you and they think that you don't exist. Lord, that though we may say we love these children or loved ones of ours, but you love them infinitely more. Lord, by your grace, do the miraculous work of drawing them to yourself. Lord, help us, Father, to see Christ and him crucified and help us to live that reality out in our own lives. God, we love you, we thank you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Mark mentioned our books, um, but I also want to mention um, um, just our, um, my, my video series. And I'm going to show just a little um, promo later. I'm going to show a video before the Q&A, but I'm also going to show a little promo video uh, about this. Um, so my book, uh, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, uh, this book... My first book is just uh, my testimony, kind of, a lot of times my mom says that our testimony, that's, that's for, the, for the heart, and the Holy Sexuality and Gospel is for the head and the hands. It's to help you think right and then do right. Because oftentimes when we talk about sexuality, it's don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. Important, but we can't build a Christian life just on God's no. So that was the, the purpose of writing Holy Sexuality in the Gospel, to help us to understand what is God's yes. What is biblical sexuality having a more robust understanding of that? And it's quite simply chastity and singleness or faithfulness in marriage. 
Well, I wrote that book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, for adults, young adults, college students. But I realized, man, we need something for teens. So I've been adapting the past three years, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, into a video series. Initially, we were going to call it Holy Sexuality Teen Curriculum, but then I realized uh, curriculum is going to scare teens away. (laughs) So we've dropped that name, curriculum, and we're just going to call it the Holy Sexuality Project. It's going to be a 12-lesson video series, and it's going to be specifically, and this is different from all the other series and you know, stuff out there, because most of those are for youth groups. Most of those are for even Christian schools. Not necessarily a bad thing, but this, the problem is the paradigm that we need to change is the misunderstanding that youth pastors are the ones who disciple your kids. That's One of the things that the youth pastors should do, but they should never be the primary discipler because a youth pastor can never replace a parent. Can I get an amen for that? A school teacher can never replace a parent. Can I get an amen for that? But doesn't the government think that the government and the public schools can replace parents? We shouldn't fall into that same trap. And youth pastors, I mean, yes, they're going to disciple your kids, but that's only the secondary. They should not be the primary disciplers. So many of the resources out there are, are for youth pastors in youth groups, but that then, the problem with that is youth pastors don't live with your teens. They don't actually see the teen day in and day out, Right. And even more, the youth pastor is not going to be with the teen once the teen leaves for college. Who's going to be with that teen once this teen leaves for college? Parents, you will, and grandparents. So we're very excited that this project is specifically for parents and their teens. We're encouraging churches, instead of showing it to youth groups, show it to parents. Get groups of parents together. You go through the curriculum, or I'm sorry, not the word curriculum. I'm falling into that trap. (laughs) The video series with parents together, so they'll be very familiar with it. They'll go through the parent guide, which has all these, you know, these questions and these prompts. So they're familiar with the questions. They're familiar with with the videos. And then they go home and watch these videos with their teens. So be sure to scan. I mean, you, you know, if you want, get your, get your phones out. You're not going to offend me. Get your phones out. You can scan this and you could put in your, um, your, your name and your email address and help us to get the word out because um, we had been in discussion with some large ministries and organizations to, to help us to produce this. But then after a while, I realized that actually there's going to be some limitations because the bottom line, unfortunately, even in Christian publishing is money. Curriculum, curriculums don't make money. And at any moment, they can pull it off the shelves and then you then lose all your rights. So we're doing this on our own, which means that there's less chance of being canceled. And yet, but then the problem is the distribution channel. So help us to get the word out because really, we really want this to be uh, something that's going to be a good resource for everyone. Uh, we're also um, not 
you know, planning this uh, to be something that's affordable and accessible to people. This, is, this has been a, a large project, actually well into six figures, because we're using animation. Many of the animators, illustrators, and sound engineers are people that actually produce videos for the Bible Project. You guys familiar with that? And uh, so it's um, animation is very costly. They charge by second, and we have 250 minutes of curriculum. Now, not all of it is going to be animation, but there's a good amount of animation in it to keep kids engaged, people uh, to help drive points home. And um, but something like this, probably the video series would cost maybe 200, 300 dollars. We're probably just going to charge people 20 dollars, and. That whole amount is actually going to go into our next video series, where this one is the Holy Sexuality Project video series for teens, for parents and their teens. The next project we're working on is video series for parents and their children. Because we need something for younger kids in grade school. So it's going to be for parents and grandparents. My mom always needs to remind me, grandparents. (laughs) Parents and grandparents... For their children. So we're so excited that actually all these funds, um, fortunately, this project has already been funded by some really, really generous donors. And so the next one, uh, we're, um, we're, we're kind of gearing up to create this video series for parents and grandparents and their children. Um, so feel free. We're, we're expecting to probably release in probably a month and a half. And within the next few weeks, we'll be releasing more information. So put in your email and your name and your uh, email address so that we can help you to keep informed. So how do we live and respond well when we're living in a world of infinite shades of gray? Not just 50. <laughs> Ambiguity is a virtue. Think about that. The less clear you are, the better. If you actually insist on something that's true and objective, that's offensive. And this is the lie that we live today, that your sexual desires define you, determine you, and should always delight you. But since the fall of Adam and Eve, the human heart has set itself in defiance against God's perfect ways. This idolatry of sexual freedom is on a collision course with the gospel. As my life was on a collision course with the gospel. So how do we understand and respond well to this topic of sexual identity and gender identity? Because we haven't been doing a good job. There's a survey that asks young Americans, what do you think about Christians? And look at this. It's, it's quite shocking. We are viewed to be, from the bottom, we are viewed to be confusing, not accepting, boring, insensitive, out of touch, too political, old-fashioned, hypocritical, judgmental, and guess what's at the very, very top? Anti-homosexual. 91% of those not raised in the church, 8 out of 10 of our own youth and young adults believe that we are anti-gay. And that is wrong. The gospel is not against anyone. It's for people turning to Christ, turning from their sins through Christ, but it's still for people, and so should we be for people. But unfortunately, people's perception is their reality. So how can we do a better job at engaging and showing that this is good news? This is the gospel. Holy sexuality, sexuality is not somehow disconnected with the gospel. Sometimes people are like, well, this is not a gospel issue. I was like, actually... 
sexuality, it's grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we are all sinners, that we all need Christ, and that we are all redeemed and sanctified and justified in Christ. That is the foundation of our understanding of sexuality. So how do we communicate biblical sexuality as the good news of Jesus Christ? Well, there's going to be, if you would like my notes, you can scan this QR code. I'm giving a lot of QR codes, so I hope you guys know. If you don't know what a QR code is, that's okay. Just welcome to 2023. (laughs) But if you don't know what a QR code is, that's okay, because you can just jot down this shortened URL, and you could get the same thing as scanning this QR code. As you're scanning it, you, you will be asked to maybe sign up for Dropbox. You do not need to sign up for Dropbox. I think there's an X in the upper right-hand corner. You can just kind of X out of that. But you can also jot this down. Now, if you are writing this down, be sure to not put an S here. Most websites now have HTTPS. This is just HTTP. For whatever reason, it doesn't work. So I'm going to center my talk around four things. Four main things, uh, and the first one has to do with our attitude. Before we address this issue of sexuality, especially in others, we need to look at ourselves. We need to be convicted about our own sin first. When I lived as a gay man years ago, I felt Christians were telling me that somehow gays and lesbians deserved a hotter place in hell, that Jesus had to hang on the cross a little bit longer for those in the gay community. It's not true. Same-sex relationships are sinful. It's just not the worst sin. But sometimes don't we treat it like that? Oh, my goodness, you know, this person's going to hell. Well, and I get this question, you know, are gays going to hell? And it's like, well, actually, apart from Christ, all of humanity is going to hell. (laughs) So, like, there's no, like, distinction here. No discrimination at all. We all deserve God's wrath. Not because, you know, it's because anything to do with God. It's all because of us. We all are sinners. We all are imperfect. We all are fallen, and we deserve the consequence of that. Apart from Christ, we all are. But, you know, is this the worst sin? Oh, well, it's an abomination. They are an abomination, which if you look carefully at Leviticus, Leviticus does not say they are an abomination doesn't say he is an abomination. You know what it says? It is an abomination. You know what that means? It's not the person, but the sin, the act is an abomination. So we're wrong to say the person, she or he is an abomination. It's this sin, the behavior. An abomination. Well, Proverbs 6 says lying is an abomination. Pride is an abomination. So when was the last time your friend was prideful and you say, you are abomination? <laughs> Maybe we should, because then we wouldn't trivialize sin that really grieves the heart of God. Well, it makes me feel uncomfortable. And certainly we should never feel comfortable about sin. Oh, it's disgusting. And I wonder when people say that it's so gross or disgusting, that that should actually be a reminder for them that that is just a fraction of what God feels when he looks at their own sin. Because our sin is just as odious, just as bad in God's eyes than someone else's sin. Because at the end of the day, my hope is that people would know and follow Jesus. 
but that's never done through a holier-than-thou attitude. Have you ever met anyone who came to Christ through someone who's really prideful? Oh, I came to Jesus. This older lady, she shared me the gospel, and she's just so pompous. You ever heard that before? I've never heard that before, ever. It's someone who's gentle and compassionate and loving and patient and knows their own brokenness, and that's really, you know, just someone who's lovable, not someone who's prideful. So first and foremost, before we do anything else, let's look at ourselves and make sure that we are convicted about our own sin, but by the grace of God, go wide, and that leads to humility. And humility is always a great place to start. Second, let's be consistent. And this is in three ways. First of all, regarding relationships. Are you married or are you single? And there is such an enormous imbalance between being married and being single in the world and in the church. Even in the church, even among Christians, we give this impression that like, you know, uh, that singles are sometimes like second-class citizens. Where do they fit in? You know, how, how, how do we communicate that well? And you're like, well, okay, I see that, but what does this have to do with my lesbian neighbor? Everything. Because if our message, if our hope for this, our loved one or friends or neighbors, is that number one, they would follow Jesus. Like, that has to be number one. If you have a loved one, if we don't make in our mind, in our, in our prayer life, what should be the first thing, then we're praying for the wrong things. Like if you have a lesbian daughter and you're praying that she would break up with your girlfriend, if she dates a boy, she doesn't know Jesus, she's still lost. So we need to make sure we're praying for the right thing. Follow Jesus, number one. Through that relationship with Jesus, they will go and sin no more. How can we go and sin no more if we don't know Jesus, right? So number one, we would want this loved one to... to or neighbor to follow Jesus and then through that go and sin no more, which you know what that means? That person would not be in a same-sex relationship anymore, which means that person would be single for a period in their life, if not a longer period in their life. And if so, do we have a healthy place for singles to thrive in Christian community today? Let's be honest. No. Singles feel like second-class citizens. We treat singleness even equivalent to loneliness. I understand why the world thinks that. Because they don't have Christ. That's what my gay friends tell me. They tell me, you're saying that I need to be lonely for the rest of my life. You know what they're doing? They're equating singleness with loneliness. And I know for certain that singleness is not equivalent to loneliness. Because I know some people who are married and they're still miserably lonely. So marriage is not the cure to loneliness. You know what's the cure to loneliness? It begins with a relationship with God. That is a cure to loneliness, not another person. And yet we often treat marriage to be the key to happiness. Well, I think we're at risk sometimes of idolizing marriage. You're like, oh, how dare you, you know, d- you know diminish the beauty of marriage. I'm not. I'm just saying that the most deceptive forms of idolatry is when we try to worship something good. Good things aren't meant to be worshipped. Only Christ is. Marriage is good. It's even very good, but we should not worship it. What makes us whole is not marriage. Many times husbands are very self-deprecating. They're like, oh, this is my better half. And it's probably true. (laughs) But my point is that marriage does not make you whole. Christ makes you whole. 
When I taught at Moody Bridal Institute, <laughs> I told all my students, before you become one, be whole. Before you become one in marriage, be whole in Christ. I often see people who try to become whole in marriage. They don't. Instead, they become a codependent mess. Jesus, when he quotes in Mark 10 and Matthew 19, when he quotes Genesis 2, the two shall become one flesh, note that it's not the two halves become one flesh. It's the two become one flesh. This is the only time that one plus one equals one. We need to be whole in Christ, I believe, before we try to become one in marriage. But we treat, I mean, it's, we give this confusion even to our little kids. How do all fairy tales end? Well, first they get married, and then they live happily ever after. You know, it's like the end. You know? Sorry, Sally, no more story to tell here. They just got married. End of story. No more 10-year checkup or 20-year checkup. Hopefully they're still married. Actually, it's, hopefully they're still married. But the real lesson we need to be teaching our kids is this. It is not marriage that should bring you ultimate contentment. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who should bring you ultimate contentment, whether you're single or whether you're married. And parents, as you pray for your children, I, you know, I've, I was not raised in, a, in, in the church environment. So, you know, a lot of times at Moody Bridal Institute, I would, you know, at, you know after, you, you know, when spring came around, you got this whole, you know, your, your peel, you know, your mailbox was stuffed with all these, you know, wedding invitations. And so you go to these and you hear parents, you know, tell these really kind of sweet, you know, touching stories of how they, you know, the, the, the father would be like, you know, I prayed for you, you know, when my son was in, in the womb, you know, I prayed for the, you know, the bride. That, and, and I thought that was really endearing and sweet. But I think that that prayer is incomplete, Pray for your possible kid's future spouse. But also pray that up until that point that your child is married, that your child would make Jesus their all in all. Because oftentimes it's during that time when they're still as single young adults, that's when they're wayward. And maybe it's because we're not praying for their time as singles to make God everything. We need to lift up the beauty and gift of marriage. We say the sanctity of marriage, but sometimes I think we don't really hold to the sanctity of marriage. And so we almost trivialize it. I was at church one time back when I was back living in Illinois, and uh, my, my parents and I, we were like front row people because I, I kind of have like, um, I don't know, ADHD or something. Like, I, I got to focus. You know, I'm like squirrel, you know? <laughs> and so I got to be front row, but we got there early, and there were people in the back, and, and there was, they were like, you know, talking. And I mean, you're, you're trying to like pretend you're not listening, but you are. And, and someone was like behind me, a, a young adult, and I guess he had just met a young lady. And everyone's like, oh, my goodness, I'm so happy for you. Congratulations. And I'm like, he didn't do anything. 
Like, he still has no job. He's still mooching off his parents, you know. It's like, you know, do something first, you know. He just met someone. What does that mean? Like, I mean, if it was me, I'd be like, you know, is she following Jesus? Does she love the Lord? And, and how do you know that she's really love, does she really love the Lord? Like, that's, those are questions. Because I think when we don't ask those questions, and have you prayed about this? That's when we are actually trivializing marriage and sometimes pushing into these relationships that aren't actually holy. Marriage is good. We need to lift up the beauty and gift of marriage, but sometimes I think we do that at the expense of singleness. So now singleness at best is a consolation prize. I'm so sorry you're single. Singles are projects. They need to be fixed of their problem of singleness. That's why we say, I, I want to fix you up with someone. Think about the words we use. Is that, and in our distortion of our understanding of singleness, we even think that singleness is not good. I think that's a distortion of Genesis 2.18 when we say it is not good for man to be alone. That's true, but is alone the same thing as being single? I'm a single man. I'm, you know, I'm I'm a single man, and I'm rarely alone. Actually, I enjoy being my, you know, solitude every once in a while, like being to myself. I'm rarely alone. It's not good for a man to be alone, but then we then distort that to mean it's not good for a man to be single. And if that really is what that verse was saying, then that means Jesus is not good. You see, a deficient theology of singleness results in a deficient theology of Christ. To the point that oftentimes we won't even call a man who is not married. Because heaven forbid, unmarried men are not safe. But married men are safe. To the point where if Jesus Christ and Paul himself, the apostle, were lived today they would not be able to serve in 90% of our own evangelical churches. There's something wrong with that. We need to look to the word of God to see what God says about singleness. See, this is so important because so many of our youth, I think, are leaving the church, even people that are struggling themselves, because they're like, it's unfair. It's unfair for God that I have to be single, as if singleness is bad. See how we're actually, I think, feeding into the problem by saying nothing about singleness? We're saying everything about the goodness of marriage, and we're saying nothing about singleness, which gives the impression that marriage is good, singleness is bad. Our youth, they said singleness is bad. It's unfair. Actually, it's in our law. Do you know that? It's in our U.S. law that singleness is bad? Would the Supreme Court legalize same-sex marriage? The Obergefell decision, you can read it. Justice Kennedy wrote this, to deny someone marriage is to relegate them to a life of loneliness. How pitiful. I mean, why would anyone not be for marriage then? To deny someone this, and he calls it a right. To be clear, marriage is not a right. If it was, where's my right to marry? Anyone, any single people in here, any single ladies in here? If I were to ask, and you don't have the answer, many of you are single not by choice. 
The majority of Christian singles that I know are single not by choice. Where's their right to marry? If, if, if marriage is an actual freedom, an actual personal right, where's their right to marry? You see how marriage, it's not a right. It's a covenant between two people. That's what marriage is. A covenant is not the same thing as a right. But we need to look to the word of God to see what God says about singleness. Do you know in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that not only is singleness good, he calls it a gift. Can you believe that? A gift. Now, let me give you some advice for those in this room who are no longer single and you're married. Don't keep reminding your Christian single friends that this is a gift. I know very few singles that actually like that verse. You know, no one that I know have made that like their life verse. You know, sincerely, First Corinthians 7, 7, woohoo. <laughs> it's usually like the opposite. Like I have no idea what Paul's talking about here. It doesn't feel, actually, what's the return Paul has in that gift? Like I, I think I still got that receipt, you know, here. I'm going to like give it back like a bad Christmas present. I'm, I'm, as a single man, I know singleness is not easy, but having spoken to some married people, I hear that marriage at times can be not easy. With those difficulties come blessings, but in the same way, singleness, it's not easy. But with those difficulties do come some blessings. Why is it then that we only focus upon the enormous blessings of marriage and the enormous challenge of singleness? See how this is starkly inconsistent and unbiblical? We can all agree that marriage is a gift. Hallelujah, marriage is a gift. When it comes to singleness, we don't agree that it is a gift. You know what we say instead? We say singleness it's a calling. <laughs> you know, you have to be like special. I hear this all the time. Like, you know, it's only a special situation that people are like called to singleness. You know, you have to be like Superman or Wonder Woman to be single, which I don't know if you've noticed. Most of the superheroes are single and their love interest is their weakness. No wonder why our young adults are so confused about marriage because you have to have superhuman powers just to be single. <laughs> And we're giving all of these wrong messages, I believe. You know, uh, you know it's, it's, it's the majority of my Christian friends are married. They're happily married, but they tell me marriage takes work. Giving of yourselves, that's not easy. Loving unconditionally, that's not easy. Paul in Ephesians 5 says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How? By laying your life down for her. Amen, ladies? Amen, wives? So I don't know what husband that doesn't struggle, struggle with that nearly impossible calling to lay your life down for your wife. So do you know what I say tongue-in-cheek about marriage? I say marriage, whew, that's a calling. Seriously. <laughs> Singleness, that's a gift. I don't have to lay my life down for anyone yet. But I am not saying, though, that then one is better than the other. I'm just re reading the full counsel of God and recognizing that marriage and singleness in Christ are both good gifts. They're both good. They're not a bad thing. We should no longer only emphasize one over against the other. Because when we do, that gives the wrong impression that marriage is the only thing that's good and singleness is not. See, when we think about singleness, we sometimes get so caught up in like thinking like this is a lifelong thing. I'm just, the Bible doesn't think about like what you're going to do for the rest of your life. It's just think about what are you right now? If you're single... In Christ, that can be good. If you're married right now, regardless of whether things are going right or if you're, maybe there's some tension right now, actually that still is a good thing in Christ. 
Whatever situation you find yourself in, that's actually a message clearly in 1 Corinthians 7 talking about here, about singleness and marriage. Whatever condition you find yourself in, free or slave, Gentile or Greek, you know, single married, in Christ, what matters most is your calling to Christ. I think we're not even ready to address the issue of sexuality until we first redeem singleness. Second, we need to be consistent regarding sexuality. What is God's standard when it comes to sexuality? Is it heterosexuality? Because we give this impression, oh, that's, that's Genesis 2. It says, God, Genesis 2 says God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and. So obviously people say it must be heterosexuality. But let's think about this biblically. Heterosexuality is a really broad definition being attracted to the opposite sex, being sexually intimate with someone of the opposite sex. I could be sleeping with half a dozen women, heterosexual. I could be a married guy living with, man, I'm cheating on my wife with another woman. That's also heterosexuality. I could be an unmarried guy living with my girlfriend. We have a couple children together out of wedlock also heterosexuality. Those three scenarios that I gave you, and I could give you more, are all sinful in God's eyes, but heterosexual. God would never say, this is my standard when it includes sinful behavior. See, my issue with heterosexuality is not that it's fully wrong. I mean, man and woman in marriage, that is something that God blesses, but marriage between a man and woman is not representative of all heterosexual. Like, Marriage between a man and woman is not equivalent to heterosexuality. It's one form of heterosexual relationship. See, we need to be very precise. It's not fully wrong. It's just not fully right. So we need to recognize that actually this whole category, heterosexuality, bisexuality, homosexuality, this whole framework that divides up humanity according to our sexual desires is not God's intent. God never intended for us to categorize humanity according to sexual desires or any desire for that matter. So what should we do? I think we should take this whole framework of heterosexuality, bisexuality, homosexuality, and set it aside. Recognize it for what it is. It's secular. It's worldly. It's Freudian. Let's use a biblical framework, not based on sexual desires, but on holiness. Not heterosexuality, not homosexuality, but holy sexuality. And what is holy sexuality? Maybe you've never heard of this before. Maybe, you know, and, and the term is new. Reading through the full counsel of God, God only lays out two paths for us. First path is when you're single, how are you going to live when it comes to your sexuality? You're going to be sexually abstinent. The other path is if you marry, using the biblical definition, a man and a woman, how are you going to live? You're going to be faithful to your spouse of the opposite sex. So quite simply, holy sexuality is chastity in singleness or faithfulness in marriage. Chastity in singleness or faithfulness in marriage. There was... There's not a term for both of those, so I created a term, holy sexuality. The term is new, but the concept is not. The concept just comes right out of the pages of Scripture. And what I like about this term is this term applies to all of us. doesn't matter if you're man or woman, young or old, opposite sex attractions, same-sex attractions, both or none. We all need to pursue holiness. You might think that's fine, but my gay neighbor can only have that 
one option to be single for the rest of his life. Not necessarily so. Let me tell a story about a good friend of mine. He lived as a gay man like myself, comes to Christ. He decides to no longer pursue same-sex relationships, but he didn't have any interest in the opposite sex, so he was going to be single for the rest of his life, and he was okay with that. He became really close friends with this young lady, also a new Christian. She came from a broken past. She dated boys, was sexually active. Some of those relationships were a bit toxic, so she committed that she wasn't going to date for a while. So the two of them felt just really safe because he knew she didn't want to date, and she knew he didn't like girls. So they were like best buds. After some time, he began noticing some things about her that he hadn't noticed before, like her hair. She smelled good, and she had curves. <laughs> he says, puberty is hard going through once, try going through puberty twice. <laughs> he got up enough courage, asked her on a date. After some dating, he asked her to marry him. And after some dating, and, and, and on their wedding night, he told his new bride, he said, honey, I can't explain this. I'm not attracted to any other women. I'm only attracted to you. Holy sexuality. Sanctification is given by the only one who is holy himself. Chastity and singleness, faithfulness in marriage is a gift from God. Third, we need to be consistent regarding change. What does change look like? Going from gay to straight? No. Or what if, what if like a person is tempted in a certain way? Does that mean um, that this person hasn't been fully changed? Well, do we apply that same standard for anything else? Say a guy was a drunk, comes to Christ, stops drinking. But after years of sobriety, he admits he's still tempted to get drunk, but he doesn't. Would we then say, you haven't been changed. We need to lay some hands on you. You need some deliverance. I hope not. Because the manifestation of God's grace is more evident in his life because he says no to his flesh and says yes to Christ. So change, it is not the absence of temptations. God doesn't promise you you won't be tempted anymore. Jesus Christ himself was tempted in every way. Change is not the absence of temptations, but change is the spirit-wrought ability, not my ability, but God's ability to be holy and to become more and more holy Progressive sanctification to be holy even in the midst of temptations. Because God's faithfulness is not proven by taking our struggle away. That's not how God works. God's faithfulness is shown by carrying us through it. And this is important. And I mentioned this uh, earlier because oftentimes we think about this this wrong framework that it's about, you know, orientation change where ultimately it's not about, you know, even for myself. Do I believe that my attractions can change? Well, let's broaden that out. Do we believe that a person's temptations will ever change? I think it's possible, but even if there is a change in our sin struggle, at the end of the day, we're still going to struggle with sin on this side of glory. So we need to be convicted, we need to be consistent, and third, we need to be compassionate. I've been teaching at, um, I taught at Moody for 12 years, and every semester I had students that confided with me that they're wrestling with their sexuality. And what broke my heart is that often they would tell me that they haven't told anyone. And by feeling so isolated, they often struggle with depression and even thoughts of suicide. So how can we 
just be more compassionate when it comes to engaging and sharing the gospel on this topic. Well, first thing is expect that this is present here in our own homes, in our own churches, not be surprised. I still get people who are shocked. Oh, my goodness, like this guy I grew up with in youth group. We're now adults, and he's telling me he has same-sex attractions. I don't know how that, how that happened. He came from a good home. He had Christian parents. He was even homeschooled. I'm like, okay, are you really saying that if someone comes to home, they have Christian parents, they're even homeschooled, that they are now exempt from struggling with sin? All right, newsflash. Like, even right now in this, in this sanctuary, I mean, there's, there might be a handful of you, maybe three, maybe five, six maybe of you that's struggling with sin. <laughs> don't raise your hand. I want to embarrass any of you. Don't, don't hold, raise your, you know, because you'll have you stand out or whatever. Let's be really honest. We all need to fight temptations every single day. I mean, what's the body of Christ? Are we a group of people that have got, you know, don't have any problems, got our ducks in a row, and we, months, we meet once a week, we hold hands, and we sing kumbaya? Is that what the church is? Or is a church a group of people that know we are broken and we need Jesus? I'll just be honest with you. I am broken and I need Jesus. Anyone, anyone out there that can relate to that in any way, shape, or form? And so let us all hand in hand walk together to him. Not because I could fix you, I can't. Not even because I have the answers, I don't. But I know someone who does, and his name is Jesus. See, right now, and this is actually so current, this one point. There is this misperception that somehow people like me have it harder than you. I hear this. It's on social media. Pastors, evangelical pastors are saying this. That somehow, like people like me, that I have more faith than you. Not true. As a matter of fact, I have faith that's probably like a mustard seed. My walk with Jesus really shouldn't be any different from yours. Because I base that on Jesus' own words. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must, not an option, must do what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We want to skip over those first two things, don't we? We don't want to deny ourselves. We don't want to take up our crosses daily. We want to follow Jesus. You can't. Oh, I take up my cross every day. Like, you know, it's, I got this really difficult neighbor or my, you know, my, my boss is, you know, she's so hard on me. That's not taking up your cross. That's an inconvenience. Not taking up your cross. You know what the cross represented in the first century? Not an inconvenience. The cross in the first century was not a pretty decoration you won't find in any first century home in Rome a nice, like, wall full of, like, a, you know, mural of crosses. The cross represented only one thing, death. As a matter of fact, the most gruesome, hard, difficult form of death the world has ever known, even to this day. And Jesus says, Take that up and follow me. Following Jesus should cost us everything. 
If it hasn't, you're following the wrong Jesus. My walk with Jesus should not be any different than all of yours. Are we daily denying ourselves, taking up a cross, and following him? Or are we embracing ourselves? That's what the world says. Be who you want to be. Embrace yourself. I look through scripture. I'm looking, looking, looking. I can't find it. Jesus clearly says, he doesn't say embrace yourself, deny yourself. Because when we can say with Paul, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, that's the only time that Christ can live in us. Christ can't live in you if you have not been crucified. Saying no to self means saying yes to Christ. So we need to, this is just express, this is really no different. Like when we land this, not as some peculiar, strange issue, like of sexuality or even gender, this is just related to man's need for Christ. It's going to bring it all back to that. What's the gospel? We're all sinners, but there's even a greater savior. Put your faith in him. That's it. Second, Know your position. And it comes back to that. I mean, I'm kind of repeating myself. You know, what's my position? I think positions are like main takeaways. I've been here all day. My message in the morning, my message in the first session, second session, third session, my parents' message. Really, it's just one message that I can distill to two words. Follow Jesus. When things are difficult, follow Jesus. When your desires are just kind of brimming and they're just running all over and it's like, do I go this way, that way? Follow Jesus. When you're sick on your deathbed, follow Jesus. When you lose your job, when your friends leave you, follow Jesus. That's my position. Third, maybe you have a loved one and you always wonder whether they're wrestling with this. And you're like, well, how do I ask them? How do I bring it up? Don't. Like if someone came up to you out of the blue and said, hey, do you have same-sex attractions? Awkward. Like, I don't know how else you can make that anyway, like smooth. Instead, give assurance of your friendship. Tell them, I thank God for you. I just want you to know nothing can change my love for you. When you say that, you've created this safe space and invited them in it. Fourth, let's be a community that says no to the gay jokes and the bullying. Unfortunately, it's Christians who are most guilty sometimes of the gay jokes. Even our kids can be really flippant with the words, that's so gay, that shirt is so gay, a shirt cannot be gay. (laughs) Not possible. You know, I tell youth, like, how about this idea? Like, learn new words. You know, you got your vocabulary, grow it. You know, more... Like, instead of saying, that's so gay, how about, that's so Baptist, or that's so Presbyterian, or, you know, something really creative like that. I'm sure you can think of something really, really good. (laughs) Convicted, consistent, compassionate, lastly, complete. This is complete in what we say. We focus upon God's truth because it's a truth that sets us free. So what is the truth? Oh, it's a sin. I got it. It's a sin. Anything more? No, that's it's a sin. When that's all we say is it's a sin, that's the same thing as giving someone a one spiritual law tract. Guys, remember the four spiritual laws? It's not the four spiritual laws. It's the one spiritual law that goes like this. You're a sinner and you're going to hell. Sorry. In case you didn't know, that's not good news. That's bad news only, right? 
But think about it. That's essentially all we've been telling the gay community. You're a sinner and you're going to hell. Sorry. There's no hope for you. It's no wonder why the LGBT community want nothing to do with us because we have not been giving them the good news. We're telling them the bad news only. We're not telling them the complete truth. We're just telling them an incomplete truth. And when you tell someone an incomplete truth only, that's just as harmful as telling someone a lie. So what is a complete truth? In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he lists a bunch of sins, but sometimes we'll just look at two of those and say, look, gays and lesbians won't inherit the kingdom of God. And when we do that, we conveniently forget about all the other sins. Because if we look at all 10 sins, none of us should inherit the kingdom of God. Bad news. But I praise the Lord, Paul didn't stop there, and he goes on to say one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, such were. What, what tense is that verb? Past tense. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. That's not good news. That's amazing news. That's news that we can declare to anyone who needs to know about Jesus Christ. See, our message has to be redemptive. It needs to focus upon the good news of Jesus. Our loved ones, friends, neighbors, co-workers who identify as gay or lesbian or trans, their main problem is not their sexuality or their gender. That is not their main problem. Their main problem is their need to know and follow Jesus. My biggest sin was not being in same-sex relationships. My biggest sin was unbelief. That is what separated me from God. So how do we be redemptive? I'm going to share some practical things here before we jump into the Q&A about how do we minister to Christians who have same-sex attractions and walk with them, encourage them, and then how do we share Christ with those who identify as gay, the majority, most of them who don't know Christ. And of course, they're like, well, some do, but we need to look at their lives. Is their lives aligning? Do they, do they actually show the fruit of salvation, which is the good fruit of repentance? If they doesn't, then we need to proclaim them and point them to the true gospel. So two groups, Christians who have same-sex attractions, who know that they're living in, you know, that, that, that this is not something that God wants them to act on. How do, we, how do we walk with them? Let's just say after this weekend, you actually have a close friend that confides with you that they're wrestling with a sexuality. Or maybe if you're a pastor, a local pastor, and you have someone come into your office and you know, I have same-sex attractions, what would you say or do? Number one, thank them. Thank them for trusting you with this really private matter. If you're a parent, thank them. Tell them I love you. And here's a little note, parents. Do not follow that I love you with this one word, but. When you say but, you've just erased everything that you said before. Instead, you could say, tell me more. Or say, I love you and... I love you so much to tell you. See, there's a difference. Thank them. Second, tell them that they're not alone. You see, when we actually ground this in the gospel, that we're all sinners, we all need Christ, that then helps us to realize that we're not alone. The enemy wants to make you think you're all alone. The enemy wants you to think that no one else understands. The enemy wants to isolate you. Not only isolate you, but even if you're not the one struggling, 
The enemy wants to immobilize you. So like both sides, someone struggling, enemy wants to just isolate them, say, don't tell anyone. No one will ever understand. They're not going to accept you. These are all the lies that people are hearing that are struggling with the same sex attraction. They're going to reject you. Those are all the lies. But then on the receiving end, people like our enemy wants to immobilize you. What do I mean? I often hear this when people say, and sometimes even pastors say this, like, you know, they'll call me up or write, send me an email. They're like, man, there's someone, some guy just came in my office, or maybe you're not a pastor. They'll be like, my good friend just shared this with me, and I don't know, like, how to help this guy. You know, I don't have same-sex attractions. And like in the email or like when they're expressing, they like say seven times, I don't have same-sex attractions. I was like, I got it. You don't have same-sex attractions. But here's the misunderstanding. Do we actually have to know what it's like to struggle with a particular sin or actually have acted on that particular sin to then help another sinner struggling with that sin? Take, for example, do you have to actually shoot up with heroin to help a heroin addict? Yes or no? No. How about, do you have to look at pornography to help struggling with a pornography addiction? Yes or no? No. Do you have to commit adultery to help an adulteress? Yes or no? No. Then why all of a sudden for this one particular sin that we are treating like some crazy, peculiar, strange sin, which it's not, it's just sin, we then feel immobilized and think, I can't help this person because I don't struggle with it ourselves. See how the enemy is trying to cloud our thinking? Sin is a problem. Jesus Christ is the answer. If you've ever had any victory over your own sin and you know Jesus, you can help another sinner. When someone comes to you in their time of need, what they do not need most is an expert. What they do need more is a friend. And you can be that friend. You can be that Christian sister or brother to walk with them. Third, help remind them that their identity is in Christ. I mean, I, I brought that in the first hour because I think that's one thing that we completely miss. It's even creeping into the, into the church. I am gay. No, that's not who you are. Even the, for, for those of you, the majority of you, probably you don't experience same-sex attractions, don't identify as straight. That's not who you are. You might have opposite-sex attractions. See how am I using that to identify your attractions? That's not who you are. Who are we? We're created in God's image. We might be sinners, but because of Christ, we now are seen through the righteousness of Christ. We now need you to bear the image of Christ. And so put your identity in Christ alone. Fourth, be realistic. Don't give these false promises. Oh, pray really hard and you could pray away the gay. Like a lot of times people say, oh, this, this guy, he's just, you know, he's just talking about pray away the gay. No. You know, prayer is important. You don't pray anything away. God is the one who can do whatever he wants. Prayer is important, but it's about Christ and him crucified. So that's the focus. Um, third, and actually, sometimes it's when, we, when God begins restoring us that things get more difficult. You guys ever notice that? It's like you begin turning back to God and like things get worse. <laughs> like sometimes seven times worse, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Things got worse. And so it's difficult following Jesus, but let me tell you for certain it's worth it. 
Because though the trials that we go through today compare nothing to the gift that we will receive in eternity. Fifth, don't focus on the externals, how people walk or talk. That's really not as important as true heart change. Sometimes we put the cart before the horse. And so that's just an important reminder. Don't get fixated on these external things when we really need to be working on spiritual maturity and just basic discipleship. Sixth, let's strengthen and deepen relationships in the body of Christ. This is one thing um, as we're talking about, and I mentioned this before about kind of the side B, gay Christianity, um, and actually the other uh, approaches in the past. I think where they all have fallen short is that a lot of times I don't think there's a clear articulation to the end, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified and him, you know, salvation and sanctification. There's not clear that end point, that's one, but also the context of the local church is often non-existent, where we find a lot of times this emphasis upon friendships. I think friendships are not necessarily a bad thing, but when we're only fixated on friendships, that is kind of focused on each other, whereas family, specifically the spiritual family, not spiritual friendship, but spiritual family, that focuses upon the local church. Do you know it's just the church that's able to storm the gates of hell and prevail? There's power in the church because of Christ. And we need to continually be pointing people to the local church. That's, I think, oftentimes the weaknesses of many parachurch organizations. That's one mistake that we did not want to do in our ministry with my parents and I. We do not want you to have this impression as some in the past where it's like, send your troubled people to us. That's pulling people out of the very local church, the context from which God has ordained to seek discipleship and sanctification. No parachurch organization should replace the bride of Christ. Amen? So what we need to actually encourage is the local church, the body of Christ. When people call our ministry, you know, one of our questions is, what's the local church that you're connected with? If not, you need to be connected. We can't say you love Christ without being connected with the body of Christ. So... What should we, um, now how do we share Christ with those in the gay community? Some who say they're, most, most of them who say they're not Christian, some who say they are, but then we're looking at their lives and it's not aligning with a true understanding of the gospel. And so here's some things that you should not do. First, do not compare this with an addiction, pedophilia, or murder. Not a good way to win people to Christ. Second, don't say lifestyle or choice. I never used those words as a gay man because I had the wrong identity. I conflated that this was not what I did, but who I was. Third, don't say love the sinner, hate the sin. Do it, don't say it. Like when you tell someone, I love you, but I hate your sin, they don't feel loved. They just hear us saying, I hate you. Fourth, don't feel the need that you have to debate with everyone all the time. There's a time for truth, but God needs to work in their lives. God needs to soften their heart first. It's okay to deflect. Jesus deflected. He did not answer every question. Often he answered a question with a question. 
So, like, for example, do you think this is sin? People ask. You can already sense they're not ready to receive that truth. Even if I was to convince them that this was sin, if they don't know Christ, they're still lost. I'm going to deflect to the more important question. And I, you could say, I know you don't even believe in God yet, so what does it matter to you right now what God thinks is sin? The more important question is, does God exist? Those conversations about the existence of God can lead to conversations about Jesus Christ that can point to salvation. So what should you do? First, pray and fast. We need to, um, uh, you guys know the movie War Room? That movie War Room was written by the Kendrick brothers. They wrote the video script, the film script, and then they asked a novelist, Chris Fabry, to turn their script into a novel. Both the movie and the book came out at the same time. When we got the book, we opened it up, and we saw that Chris Fabry had dedicated that book to my mom. Do battle for people who cannot stand in the gap for themselves. Are we praying and fasting for a revival to break out in the gay community? Wouldn't that be amazing? Second, listen. Don't be quick to speak, but be quick to listen. Oftentimes, we are just so caught up in what we say. I mean, sometimes, tell me, you can even ask, what was it like when you grew up? Must have been hard. Now, listening is not the same thing as affirming. It's what we say that might affirm. If we say, oh, I'm happy for you, that's affirming. But if you say, I see you're happy, see, that's different. I'm not affirming. I'm just recognizing their experience. Listen. Third, be intentional. We need to go. What is the Great Commission? It says, go. Doesn't say stay. Doesn't say do nothing. Go and make disciples. So we need to go. Unbelievers aren't going to come to your door. Well, unless they're Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, that's, that's a different story. But besides that, we need to go. And so go across the street. Take a casserole or, or cookies and give it to your lesbian neighbor. That's not sin. Have them in your home. Have them for dinner. Oh, but would I be condoning their sin? And that, I mean, that is a good question. But last time I checked, we usually have sinners over for dinner. You know, you're just eating with them. You're not sinning with them. There's a difference. Fourth, be patient and persistent. It's, it's going to take time for someone to come to know Christ. It took me eight years. That's actually a short time. I know people who've been praying for decades. Lastly, be transparent. Share what Christ is doing in your life lately. You know, I would never have considered the gospel if I didn't see the gospel lived out transparently in my parents' lives. I wouldn't have picked up the Bible from the trash can. Remember that? I wouldn't have picked that up if I didn't see the Bible lived out in my father's life and my mother's life. I did not leave pursuing same-sex relationships because my parents convinced me I was living in sin. No. I left it in part because I saw something better. That they showed me something better. And his name is Jesus. Our job as followers of Christ is to show a dying world out there that no matter what they're clinging to, all the fool's gold in the world, a spouse, a career, a lover, money, job, whatever it is, whatever they're clinging to, not only is Jesus better than all of that, but following Jesus is best. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for Jesus. Lord, as we are gathered to talk about biblical sexuality, let us remind that this falls in the broader context of the grand storyline that you have been doing in the people of God. We are sinners. We felt you created us in your image, and yet we fell. You sent your son Jesus to die for us. And by grace, by faith, because of grace, through faith in Christ, can we now be redeemed and restored and sanctified. Lord, we praise you for being a God whose arm is not too short to save. Lord, help us to live fully for you, for it's in the matchless name of Jesus that we pray. And the people of God said, amen.